Welcome to Chi Alpha, guys. Welcome to all the new faces. I'm excited to meet you guys in time. Welcome to the old faces who I haven't seen in a month. Excited to see you guys. Are you guys happy to be here? Yes, I am too. Uh, as I said, if you're new, I'm excited that you're here. If you don't know, my name is Sean McEntee. I am an original resident of the greatest country in the world, Texas. Um, yes, uh, and I am now a very proud resident of West Virginia. I still love the snow. I love that it's been snowing nonstop for like two days. Um, I'm excited that it's going to snow like five inches. Some of you aren't. But uh, I do. I'm excited. Uh, I'm married to an incredible, beautiful, very talented woman named Heather McEntee. Yes. She's a cougar. She's older than me. So that's great. It's, uh, I love that. Uh, we, we will be married four years in February. So that's awesome. So it's great. But... Uh, yeah, I love my wife. I love reading books. Uh, I love talking to people. If you've talked with me, you know I love talking to people and listening. I love chicken tenders. Uh, but more than anything, more than my wife, more than people, more than books, more than chicken tenders, I am absolutely, unashamedly in love with Jesus. Uh, I love talking about Jesus. I love, I love getting up here. I know it's my job. But uh, it's my job to preach, but it doesn't feel like my job. It is, it is a passion to come up here and talk about Jesus. And so, enough about me. You guys are here to hear about Jesus, right? You guys are excited to hear about Jesus? Awesome. Awesome. So it's a new semester. It's a new season, which means it's a new sermon series. Yes. Everyone's always excited. Everyone's always asking, what are we, what's the new series, right? And so our new series this semester is what we're calling the normal Christian life. Okay. I figured some of y'all, some of y'all are probably, who didn't make noises, some of y'all are probably like, okay. Some of you guys, maybe the quieter ones are like, hey, Sean, I'm already a Christian. I know what the normal Christian life is. Some of y'all are probably like, sweet, someone's finally going to tell me, right? Like, <laughs> now, if y'all were being honest, if everyone, if everyone was being honest, if we took a piece of paper, how many of you guys think you could write out what the normal Christian life is, right? If you were asked by a Christian or a, even a non-Christian what the normal Christian life is, how many of us are confident that we could actually write out what the normal Christian life is? And I'm not talking about the average Christian life. I'm talking about the normal and so what I mean by that, normal, what the word normal means a standard, whereas average just means to, to take a, a set of numbers, right, add them up, and then divide them by the total. And so to give you an example, take the normal Walmart experience versus the average Walmart experience, right? The normal Walmart experience is when you watch the Walmart commercial, right? The employees are smiling, every lane is open, right? The carts are full of the perfect produce and everyone's happy and smiling. The average Walmart experience is that you, the doors open and there's this putrid subway smell mixed with plastic, right? And there's this large man who's got nothing on but over 
overalls, and when I mean nothing, it's like nothing but overalls, right? And people are pissed, and there's literally two lanes open, but everyone and their mom decided to go to Walmart, right? That's the average experience. Or the normal McDonald's burger versus the average. The normal is when you're at home, and the McDonald's commercial comes on, and you're like, oh, that looks so good. And then you go to McDonald's, and you get the average McDonald's burger, and it's this flimsy, nasty like, that doesn't look good. I don't want to eat this anymore, right? The average, though more often what most of us get, the flimsy burger, is not the standard, right? The normal is the standard. And the same thing is true with Christianity. Normal Christianity is the standard that we're supposed to live up to, not average Christianity. But sadly, Average Christianity is what most of us see. It's Angela Martin, if you've ever seen The Office, right? Holier than thou, blatantly sinning, putting others down, right? It's, it's this hypocritical Christianity, right? And, and the reality is most people, they don't want that kind of Christianity, and, and rightly so. If Christianity's true, it shouldn't be what a lot of people see today. It should be different. It should live up to a higher standard. But what is that standard? What is normal? What is the normal Christian life? This is going to be our journey this semester. So you guys excited? Cool. So where do we start? Where does the normal Christian life start? So here's a good starting question. Is everyone in the world a Christian? No, I don't think everyone in this room is a Christian. So, if everyone is not a Christian, then that means that the Christian life is preceded by something. So what comes before being a Christian? What event happens before you become a Christian? Huh? What, what's the thing that happens? It's a Christian term. Conversion, salvation, right? Salvation, yes. Cool, so... What are you saved from? Sin. Thanks, Christian. Sin. What? Max. Thanks, Max. Hey, I don't know, man. Sin. Friends. We're talking about sin. That's kind of... It's fun, right? In fact... For the next three weeks, we're talking about sin. For the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about how we need to see our sin, how we need to hate our sin, and how we need to forsake our sin. All right? And so buckle up. Get ready. This is going to be a fun ride. I promise you guys it won't be as... It, won't, it sounds scary. It sounds sad. I promise it won't be. Now, the reason we're starting here, though, is because we believe this is the biblical foundation for the normal Christian life, right? Jesus himself and John the Baptist started here, right? At the beginning of both of their ministries, the very first words both of them said was repent. Repent, which means turn from your sins. If you and I don't properly understand sin, we will inevitably have a skewed view and understanding of the grace of God and the love of God and the justice of God, and the character of God. We must see our sin, and hate our sin, and forsake our sin, 
if we are going to understand the beauty of salvation. So therefore, we're going to start where Jesus himself started as we unfold the normal Christian life. So if you guys will pray with me. Jesus, would you speak through me, God? Would you use my foolish words, and would you bring about wisdom and truth tonight? Oh, Jesus, would you take my words, God, and would you, would you just expound them, God, to our hearts? Lord, let them not just speak to our minds only, but to our hearts. Jesus, we trust you, Holy Spirit. We give this to you in your name. Amen. All right, how many of you guys have ever built a house before? Oh, there's a couple of hands. Awesome. Anyone else built like a small shed or building? A couple people. Anyone built a Lego house? There we go. Cool. All right. What is the first thing? This, anyone can answer this question, especially you engineers. You should know this. There's a lot of y'all. What's the first thing that has to be laid when you're building a building? The most important part. Thank you. The foundation. The foundation, yes. The foundation is the most integral part of any building, right? And you see, truth operates on the same principle. Every truth must stand on a firm foundation. And the foundation of everything I'm about to say tonight about sin must stand on a foundation, right? But what is the foundation that we're to build all that we're going to say about sin on? What is the sure foundation? What's the firm ground? And this is what I believe we need to start on. It, it can't just be Sean's thoughts, right? It has to be something surer than just my words. And this is what I believe we're going to stand on tonight. God is always innocent. This is our foundation tonight. God is always innocent. This is the testimony of the Bible, the testimony of history, the testimony of your life. God is always innocent. And as we look at sin, we must look at it through the lens and built on this foundation. Man is responsible and guilty for sin, and God is always innocent. Now, I'm not going to go much further into this now. We will come back to this, but we have to lay this foundation early, right? As any building, you lay a foundation first. All right, so let's talk about sin. What is sin? We've all heard the word before. Most of us don't like it. No one likes being told they're wrong, as Damani said, right? I don't like being told I'm wrong. Charles is my brother. He calls me out. I don't like it, but, right, we need it. Now, I bet if I went out onto campus tomorrow and I had a big old thing of survey and I asked 100 different people what sin was, I'd probably get 100 different answers. And if I went to a church on Sunday and I asked 100 different people what sin was, I'd probably get 100 different answers. It seems that today we have more views on sin than we do flavors of ice cream. And a lot of times we kind of just pick our view of sin like we do fashion, just kind of doning what's ever in. And the reality is a lot of us don't really know what sin is. We don't really kind of know what we believe about it. And sadly, sin in Christianity has lost its prominence in, in place of a lot of topics that aren't bad, but topics like grace and love and unity. And again, they're not bad, right? But... As I said at the beginning, without a proper understanding of sin, the love of God and the unity found in God and the grace of God will be nothing more than hollow shells that will barely sustain us week to week. These messages will barely sustain us if we don't understand sin. 
We need to talk about sin. We must see it as God sees it and deal with it as God says we are to deal with it. So then what is sin and what is it not? Well, first off, sin is not a substance. Sin is a choice. Now, I wonder how many of you guys have ever wondered if sin is this little, like, microscopic gunk that is, like, coursing through your veins, this, like, black, vile gunk, right? And that there's this little, like, factory or something in your heart that pumps out, like, physical stuff, right? Anytime you do bad and you're like, oh, this, the sin is just pumping out in my heart, right? Like, I mean, how many of you guys have ever wondered whether sin is something physical that is actually in your bloodstream? Has anyone ever been there, like, right there with me? Anyone? Right. Do you guys know that the first modern microscope was built over 375 years ago? And that to this day, not one person has ever observed sin under a microscope. I Google searched it. I Google searched sin under a microscope. There's nothing. You can try it. There's nothing. For a long time, people have wanted sin to be a substance, a physical thing, because you see, if sin is physical, if it's something that's a part of our physical makeup, then it begins to take sin out of the realm of our responsibility. If sin is a substance, then it takes responsibility away from us. But the reality is no scientist and no laboratory has ever gotten a confined sample of sin in a Petri dish. Science here harmonizes with, the Bi- with what the Bible has been saying for thousands of years, that sin is not some substance. Sin is not tangible, physical, or material. It's not something you can examine in your bloodstream. Sin, according to the Bible, has always been a moral choice. Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel is one of my favorite books, and, and he speaks, Ezekiel speaks to this. Actually, it's the Lord who speaks to this. That um, there's this idea even today that's pretty prominent that sin is something that is passed from the father to the son. That that's passed, you know, from that that what your father does, that you are responsible for the sin of your father, and and that that goes on and on, right? And Ezekiel speaks to this, and so this is what it says in verse one through twenty. But we'll only look at one four, and then verse twenty. It says, "The word of the Lord came to me. What?" Do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So what he's, this proverb meant was that the parents would eat the grapes and then the, the children's teeth would hurt, right? The parents would sin, the children would suffer for the sin. And then God says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb. For everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child. Both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. And then from verse 5 to 19, God gives a bunch of examples about if the father sins and the son is righteous, then God's not going to judge the son. And then if the son sins and the father's righteous, then he's not going to judge him. He gives a bunch of examples. And then in verse 20, he says again, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. Now, God is very clear here, abundantly clear, that the one who sins is the one who dies, the one who makes the choice. Sin isn't a substance. 
that is passed on from generation to generation, but it's a moral choice that each man and each woman makes on his own. Now, there's a quote up here. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just kind of just to, to say it quickly. George Otis Jr. in his book, The God They Never Knew, he essentially just gives an example to say that if blood is, if the sin is passed on on the blood, then what do we do in a situation if someone got in a car accident, right? And, and someone who's not saved, you get blood from them. Are you now not saved? Right? The Bible, science, and even logic have all succinct in the testimony that sin is not a substance, but sin has always been our moral choice. So firstly, we see that sin is not a substance, sin is a choice. Next we see, this one's my favorite, sin is not a slip, sin is willful. Now by show of hands, how many of you guys have ever said this statement? I fell into sin. I'll be the first to put my hand up. Oh, come on. I fell into sin. Awesome. I'm here to show you that this isn't true. All right. Guys, listen to this. Nobody falls on purpose. I know that sounds silly. Nobody falls on purpose. Now, I know some of you in this room are arch enemies with gravity. Yes? I, I am aware of this. You know this truth is self-evident. When you trip and you bust your knee open or you chip your tooth or you twist your ankle, you didn't do that on purpose, right? When you fall up the stairs or down the stairs and you spill your soup everywhere, you didn't do that on purpose, right? When you, when you trip on uneven sidewalk and fall on your face or you stumble over nothing, you didn't do that on purpose, right? Nobody falls on purpose. And the same is true of sin. As we talk about falling and sin in correlation what comes to mind? Genesis 3, the fall. How many of you guys heard that? The fall of man. Right. Now, if you guys don't know the story of Genesis 3, this is Adam and Eve. Most people have heard of Adam and Eve, right? So in Adam and Eve, you've got the story of the Garden of Eden. God has this tree, the knowledge of the fruit of good, or, sorry, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's this fruit, and he says, Adam and Eve, don't eat of this tree. Trust me, right? And what do Adam and Eve do? They eat, right? And so, <laughs> I think it's hysterical. It's not like Adam was, like, walking, and he, like, tripped over a root and was like, oh, it's like slow-mo. And then Eve's arm, like, bumped, and then the fruit was, like, flying, and it fell off. He was like, oh. And then he tripped again, and his mouth was like, <laughs> like, it wasn't accident. He didn't accidentally bite the fruit. No, Adam and Eve made a willful decision. Adam and Eve sinned against God. In fact, how many of you guys brought your Bible with you? I want you guys to do something. Don't call me a heretic. Your Bibles, something interesting. Chapters and verse numbers and the little headings, none of that was inspired. That was some people that wanted to be helpful, right? That wasn't in the original writing. And one thing that they did with the, in your Bible, it says the fall. Right above Genesis 3, it says the fall. My pastor did this a long time ago. If you go and look at my Bible, it says this. And I want to encourage you right now to cross out the fall and write the rebellion. Because that's what that was. 
Adam and Eve didn't fall. They rebelled. God said, don't do this. They did. If there was no will behind what Adam and Eve did, if there was no will and there was no determining behind what you and I do, then sure, it was a mistake. But the reality is that Adam and Eve willfully disobeyed, just like you and I willfully go against what we know to be right. Sin is not some slip, something we just stumble or fall into. It's a willful choice we make. So we see, firstly, that sin is not some substance, but it's a choice. And we see that sin is not a slip, but that it is willful. And next we see that sin is not a suggestion. Sin is calculated. Now, sticking with Adam and Eve's story for this, i ask you guys a pretty thought-provoking question. Going back to the tree in the garden, was Eve's desire for the fruit sinful? It's not a trick question. Was Eve's desire for the fruit sinful? According to the Bible, no. According to God's standards, Eve's desire for the fruit was not sinful. Eve's desire, which her mind perceived to be a delight was not a product of sin, for at this point, Adam and Eve had not yet sinned. For she and Adam were only desiring knowledge, which in and of itself wasn't wrong. At this point, she was only being tempted. And what we must understand to be true is that temptation isn't sin. To be tempted isn't to commit sin. One of my heroes and my favorite authors, Hannah Whittle-Smith, says this, We may be enticed by temptations a thousand times a day without sin, and we cannot help these enticings and are not to blame for them. But if we begin to think that these enticings are actual sin on our part, then the battle is half lost already, and the sin can hardly fail to gain a complete victory. Now again, this doesn't mean that we give in to these temptations of no Adam and Eve were tempted by their desire for greater knowledge, by the delightful fruit. And while there is no sin in desiring to gratify a God-given appetite, right, more knowledge, sin does enter when we abuse our God-given free will by trying to gratify that desire in an illegal manner. You see, if temptation, think about this, this is crazy, if temptation really was a sin, and if temptation really was the issue, then Jesus himself would have been the chiefest among sinners because of how much he was tempted. But that simply isn't the case. Sin is not a suggestion, and temptation is not a sin. Sin is the calculated, thought-upon, chosen response to temptation. And as I stated before, we don't just fall into sin, we choose it. It's calculated. Temptation springs upon us, yes, but sin does not. And with God's moral government, as with any government, when sin is committed and laws are breached, there are repercussions and there is justice. 
But with the kingdom of God, unlike any other government, there is also mercy. And in the upside-down, inside-out kingdom of God, sin actually brings about one of God's greatest mercy ever given to us. This is crazy, y'all. Guilt. Now, this seems odd, that guilt could actually be a mercy from God. But look at this. When we feel guilt after we've sinned against God or against a person, that is because our conscience is proving and attesting to the fact that we know that we should have and could have picked differently in the situation. We should have picked differently in the situation, and we could have picked differently in the situation. That's crazy. The fact that we were tempted wasn't the sin. It was our choice. And we didn't have to make the choice, and we know it. But thank God that he's given us a conscience that feels guilt and shame for our sin. Thank God that no matter how much we might try and convince ourselves of our sin, that, it's, that's, that it lies somewhere else, our conscience says otherwise. And I pray that if you don't know what I'm talking about right now, that if your conscience has been seared, that if you don't feel guilt for your sin, I pray that tonight God is going to give you a new heart. I wonder, have you ever stopped and thanked God? This is a weird thing, but thank you, God, that I felt guilty before. That, have you ever thanked God that you have felt guilty for sin, that you haven't been so seared that you didn't feel guilty? Praise God. All righty, so sin is not a substance. Sin is not a slip. Sin is not a suggestion, but sin is a choice, willful, and calculated, which leads us to the last brief point that sin is not the status quo. Sin is selfishness. A friend of mine once told me that he got out of work, uh, and he got to his car, and taped on his windshield was a note, and there was a coworker that had snapped at him at work, and on the note, it just said, I'm sorry for having snapped at you. Please forgive me for being human. How many of us have heard this before? We're all just human. How many of you got annoyed by that? Me too. Now, when God created man, he created him with free will, right? And God knew that in giving man free will, that man could choose selfishness. But God never intended for us to use our free will for selfishness. You see, sin is not natural. A lie detector test is proof of that. We literally have a machine that proves to us that sin is not natural. It's not what God intended. And so to say I'm only human or we're all just human, while it may be true, it's not an excuse for sin. What we need to see is that sin is selfishness. Sin is not the status quo. It's not the norm. Sin is selfish. Now, realistically, we could go on and on about sin. We're talking for three weeks about sin. We could spend the whole semester. Yeah. We could spend the whole semester talking about sin, but for the sake of time, for the sake of everyone's emotions, we're not going to, right? But we're going to settle with this definition, that sin is and always has been a willful, calculated, selfish choice against God's laws and against his heart, and sin is ultimately my responsibility. 
Now, I'll be honest, guys. It's really hard to come to terms with this idea that sin is on us. It is. It's not easy for me to come to this, term, this, this idea, right? But the alternative is a lot worse. The alternative is to do what Adam and Eve did, to just put the blame of sin elsewhere. That's what each of the sin isn'ts were, right? Blame shifting is to say, well, sin is just my nature. I can't help it. It's just part of me. What else am I supposed to do? I tripped. I fell into it. Can you blame me? But we can't do that, y'all. We, we really can't do that. And so looking one last time at the story of Adam and Eve, let's see what happened when they shifted the blame elsewhere. Genesis 3, 11 through 13 says this, And he, God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me from the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And what we ultimately have here is Adam and Eve's response, in their response, is actually four different ways that they shifted the blame, the responsibility away from themselves. Firstly, we see that both of them shifted the blame to the, to the situation, right? So they kind of were like, look, we had to pick. You said don't eat from this tree. There was like the fruit, and there was all this, this whole situation. And they were essentially saying, God, if you didn't put us in this kind of situation, we wouldn't have had to make a choice, Right? And so they blamed their situation. That was the first choice they tried to put, this, put the responsibility. And then next we see that Eve blamed the snake, which we could call thi a thing or things. Right? And so essentially she was saying, well, there was this thing in front of me. Oh, and it had so much sway over me. You don't understand how persuasive this thing was. What else was I supposed to do? Right? And then next, the first thing that Adam blames was Eve a person or persons, essentially saying, well, she made me do it, right? I, I, I mean, I wouldn't have done it if she didn't pressure me. I mean, she's my wife. She's my friend. What did you expect me to do? Did you expect me to say no? And then ultimately, Adam did the saddest thing, and he blamed God, essentially saying, I would have never done this, God, if you didn't put me here in the first place. Really? This is on you. Now, you and I both know in our heart of hearts that each of these excuses are wrong. We know that the blame game is wrong. We know that when we try and blame our sin on a situation or a thing or a person or especially on God, that we're wrong. And now, please understand me, Riley. I'm not making light of the wrong that has been done to you in the past or that might be done to you in the future. I understand that you can be wronged in a situation, misunderstood, misjudged. I understand that, that things happen, physical sufferings, physical pain. I understand that people malign and, and are abusive and mean. I understand that you could be like Job, where God seems to be so distant and even against you. But the thing is, how we respond is what determines sin, regardless of your situation, regardless of things, regardless of people, regardless of what God seemingly is or isn't doing. If we respond wrongly, it's sin. And God is not emotionless. 
He's not heartless. He loves us, and he feels for us. He's compassionate, but he does not excuse sin because of our situation or things or people or even his part. And do you know the reason why he doesn't? It's because he himself has stood exactly where you and I have stood. In the person of Jesus, he has stood in the tough situations, in front of the tough things, faced with the, against the tough people before a seemingly tough God. And even before Jesus, God himself, God the Father, and yet he never sinned, and he was completely innocent. Which brings us first full circle to the fact that while man is responsible for his sin and cannot rightfully pass off the blame on anyone, anything, any situation, or even God, it remains that God is always innocent. We started on the foundation that God is always innocent, and we close in the same truth that God is always innocent. So what do I mean by that? What do I mean by God is always innocent? Well, it is simply this, that God's innocence is first necessitated, second, that it's upheld, and then because both of these, it is ultimately beautiful. God's innocence being necessitated simply means that if God is not innocent of sin, then he isn't good and he isn't God. If God isn't innocent, God isn't God. If God created sin, then he is wicked and evil and is anything but innocent. If he created you and me to sin or with sin or for sin, then he created us for selfishness and harm and evil, and he goes against his very character. So if God is the creator of sin, he isn't innocent, he can't be God. For God to be God, he must be innocent. Does that, does that make sense? Now, some of you guys, I know this, is a philo- this seems very philosophical. If it's going over your head, that's okay. For some people, this kind of frustrates us, that God has to be something. But that's where the second aspect comes in, that yes, God is necessitated to be innocent, but as also that he is, his innocence is upheld. Yes, he's necessitated, but he's always innocent. God's innocence has and will pass every test that has and will ever come his way. Now, I'm aware, and I don't shy away from the fact, that there are a lot of instances in the Bible where his innocence might come into question, and in history. Entire nations where God has commanded his people to kill off Men, women, and children, right? The Holocaust in history. Some of you guys have questions right now you're thinking about where like, well, God did this, so how does that line up with a loving God? But I wonder, have you ever started or asked your questions or read these stories in the Bible starting with this idea that God is always innocent. Typically, when we ask why God wiped out an entire nation, if we're being honest, really, we don't assume that God is innocent. We assume that man, the, the, the people in the Bible story were somehow good and probably didn't deserve to be completely destroyed 
and that God was somehow wrong for doing what he did. But is that really the case? Is God really the one who was wrong? Or was man the one who was wrong? From what we know about sin, was man guilty or was God? Now, I can't go through each case in the Bible, but my friends, every story in the Bible, every story in history, every encounter of God in your life, every one is proof that God, if you will look, has always been innocent. I promise you, God has always been innocent if you will stop and see. And if you will let the Holy Spirit brand any word of wisdom into your brain and into your heart tonight, I pray it's this, always start at the place of, of saying and, and, and looking at anything of, of just saying God is always innocent. And I promise you, he will always prove to be that. He always will. And as the necessity of God's innocence weds with the fact that his innocence is upheld, the beauty of his innocence is put on full display. And in the man of Jesus, we see, we see that innocence on full display. If you ever want to go look at the full display of God's innocence, just go look at the life of Jesus. Go look at the life of Jesus. The ultimate incarnation of God's innocence. A man who never sinned, who was beaten, who was mocked, who was tortured, who was killed. In Jesus, we have the very God of the universe becoming like us. He has literally been in the situations that have sucked that you and I have been in. He has been right there where the people, have done, the people who've done the worst things to you done the worst things to him. He's been there when it seemed like God wasn't listening to you. God literally wasn't listening to him. And do you know what his record said? Innocent. The innocence of God is necessitated, upheld, and gloriously beautiful in the person of Jesus. The band can go ahead and come up. So what is our response tonight? How are we going to respond to Jesus? How are we going to respond? Well, it's simple. We're going to see our sin for what it is, and we're going to take responsibility for it. We're going to see our sin for what it is, and we, you, me, are going to take responsibility for it. Until you and I are willing to take responsibility for our sin, we are never going to have real freedom. So long as we put the blame on someone or something or some nature or some source, or even sadly on God, we're never going to have freedom. Tonight, we need to man up and woman up and take responsibility for our sin. And so, very practical response tonight. My beautiful wife and a couple people on our staff went around, and there's a bunch of pieces of paper in the little front things in front of you guys. Some of you have journals. If you guys take that, what I want you to do is that piece of paper or your journal or whatever you have, on that piece of paper, on your journal, I want you to write down, the, I know the Lord has been speaking to you, that there is sin. doesn't matter if you're not a Christian, if you are a Christian. I know, as I've been writing this sermon, there's sin that I know 
that I've tried to blame shift. I've tried to, to shift the responsibility away and say, well, I only did this because I was in this situation or this person did this to me. That's why I did this. And I start putting it off. And I say, that, that I really, that's why I did this. And I've had to repent and I've had to say, God, I'm sorry, I did this. It was me. Doesn't matter what that, what that situation was, I did this. Right? And so what I want you to do is on that piece of paper, anything the Lord speaks to you, I want you to write that down. The first thing to do is just write down. That might be hard to write it down. It might be hard because you're having to take responsibility and say, I did this. Right? And it might be something this week. It might be something from 10 years ago. And then the next step is to seek forgiveness from God. And it's just to be honest, God, I did this, and I'm sorry. You have to be honest with him. And then there's a third step that's a maybe. And if it's a sin against a person, you might have to go say you're sorry to them. But that's, that's if the Lord prompts you. I'm not going to tell you you have to do that. And with this piece of paper, this is also practical. If it's in your journal, if you got this piece of paper, I want you to keep this piece of paper. Because when we get to the third week, forsake your sin, keep this piece of paper. Because that week, we're going to do something symbolic. We're going to forsake these sins forever. But tonight, you can still be free. You can still come to Jesus. So keep that. Put it in your wallet. Put it in your shoe. Put it in your Bible. If the Lord speaks to you throughout these weeks, write that down. Confess it to Jesus. Many of us are afraid to confess our sins to God. And hear me on this. This is huge. When the Lord spoke this to me as I was preparing this, this was one of the biggest things. So hear me. Many of us are afraid to confess our sins to God because we're afraid God is going to cast us away, right? God, if I confess that I looked at porn, you're going con- to throw me away. But God will not confess, or God will not throw us away if we confess our sins. The Bible says he will throw us or cast us away if we don't. My friends, the worst thing you can do is not confess your sins. Let me read this this psalm to you. This was, oh, Jesus, please bless them. Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed, which means happy. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Though my groaning all, through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Look, when I kept silent, I was in misery. And then verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave my, fil- my, 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 the guilt of my sin. Now look at this. Look at this. This is so beautiful. He said, I will confess my transgressions. He, he hadn't even confessed them yet. He said, I will confess them, and you forgave me. He hadn't even confessed them. He said, I will confess them. His intent, and God, God saw the intent of his heart, and he already forgave him. 
Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. While God may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You, O God, are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with the songs of deliverance. My friends, Jesus in his innocence, God who is always innocent, is the most safe place you can turn to. I am not a safe place to turn to. I am marred. I am sinful. If you come and turn to me in your brokenness, I am not going to be able to sustain you. Katie can't sustain you. No one on our staff can sustain you. But Jesus is innocent. He can sustain you. Please. I beg you, please. Please take responsibility for your sin and turn to Jesus. I believe the Holy Spirit is is pricking your hearts tonight. Confess, take responsibility, own up, and be free. In Jesus' name, Jesus, would you speak to us? Oh, Jesus, free us tonight. Not just from our sins, but free us to you, oh, Jesus. Whether we don't know you or whether we've been walking with you for years, God, give us more freedom. Give us freedom for the first time, O Jesus. Let us be brave and bold to confess our sins for what they are. They are our responsibility. Let us, Lord, look at our sins once and look to you many times, O Jesus. Look at ourselves. Yes, Lord, we must, but let us look to you many times, O Jesus. And as David prayed, God, even as we acknowledge that we will confess our sins, that you would forgive us. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.